0: Warning! Binge mode contains adult content. That's right. If you ever wondered what Lavender and Ron have been up to all these days, weeks, well then, please take it somewhere else because we're about to explore that in graphic detail. If that's not your thing, please check out any of the other great properties on the Ringer Podcast Network. One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet
1: know why we're considering my Binge Heart necklaces for our next bit of merch. Beautiful. So sweet. Lovely. Chunky golden chains. Please proceed with extreme caution. And
0: now, Pinge Mode. You can try, said Harry indifferently, but you seem cleverer than Fudge, so I'd have thought you'd have learned from his mistakes. He tried interfering at Hogwarts. You might have noticed he's not minister anymore, but Dumbledore's still headmaster. I'd leave Dumbledore alone if I were you. There was a long pause. Well, it's clear to me, he's done a very good job on you, said
1: Scrimjaw, his eyes cold and hard behind his wire rimmed glasses. Dumbledore's man, through and through, aren't you, Potter?
0: Yeah, I am, said Harry. Glad we
1: straightened that one out. And turning his back on the Minister of Magic, he strode back toward the house. <laughs> Yeah! And welcome to Binge Mode Harry Potter. I'm Allie Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. What a great website. Joining me today, now that he's finished professing his undying love for Vane. Devane, Ooh. Ringer Senior Creative and your headmaster. I love her. Jason Concepcion.
0: Dark eyes. It's a little shady. That's a thing, though. But have you seen her hair? And has she heard about Binge Mode Harry Potter, where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe? Whether or not you're suffering from loser's allergy, which is a real thing, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us. Five points and stars. For binge mode. Please be sure to check out our Fantastic beast, The Crimes of Grindelwald final trailer breakdown. We had a great time doing that. And yes. you can find that on the Ringer's YouTube channel and all the Ringer and Binge social platforms. Speaking of social, please follow us on Twitter and Instagram, mash that follow button at binge underscore mode, aka the underscore, and mash the may I follow button for our Facebook group, which is just for Binge Mode fans and which is an excellent place to share your favorite snippets of Luna's unbelievable Quidditch commentary. She's a natural. Yeah. A natural.
1: On the last Binge Mode Harry Potter, we explored how warning signs shaped chapters 12 through 15 of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. And on today's episode, we're diving into chapter sixteen through nineteen. Mark the spoiler warning for today's binge, as always. While those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep, 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 deep on details from all seven books and eight films, and the wider Potter mm. canon, taking the entire series into account from the moment we modify our own memories. So turn on the spot, feeling your way into nothingness, because it's time to head. To the hospital wing.
0: Mal, don't you ever let me see you throwing knives again! I won't let you see. Now that that's settled, let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in Prince Chapter 16-19 by climbing aboard this scarlet steam engine to plot the Hogwarts Express future. For the holidays,
1: Harry heads to the borough, where he shares his concerns about Snape and meets the new Minister of Magic, Rufus Scrimgeour, who attempts to recruit Harry as a ministry mascot
0: in order to cheer up the public. Meet the new boss, a lot like the old boss. Harry refuses, and back at school, Dumbledore shows him a pair of new memories, which show Voldemort as a teenager and Hogwarts student. But the second, which involves a conversation between Tommy Riddle and Professor Sluggy, has been tampered with, and Harry is tasked with obtaining the original memory.
1: Later. Ron accidentally ingests love potion-infused chocolates. Tough tough stuff for my guy. (laughs) Falls for Ramil Devane. Get off Jason's corner, Ron. And after taking the antidote, he then drinks poison mead from Slughorn's stash. Happy birthday. Very tough birthday for Ron.
0: Harry saves him with some quick thinking and a bezoar, but he grows increasingly suspicious about Malfoy, and after ending up in the hospital overnight due to a Quidditch mishap, he tells Dobby and Creature to spy on his nemesis in an effort to figure out what Draco's plot is. Jason. Yes. For the
1: first time, I'm giving you homework. Mm. It will be your job to persuade Isaac to divulge the real edit, which will undoubtedly be our longest and oh most God. crucial piece of podcasting of all. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme of chapter 16 through 19 of Harry Potter and the
0: Half-Blood Prince is moves and counter moves. Chapter 16, A Very Frosty Christmas. Ah, the holidays. What a wonderful time to unwind with friends and family and let the spiced bruise sluice through our gut and wash away our worries. Or if you're Harry, a time to indulge in relentless Malfoy theorizing. Our guy really doesn't know how to unwind. Well, I mean, like, at least he understands that something is afoot. For once, Harry is right. After all, the last book, I'm happy for my guy. As Christmas break begins, we find Harry and Ron at the burrow peeling sprouts, debriefing about what Harry overheard transpired between Snape and Malfoy. Ron is stunned by the reveal that Snape made the unbreakable vow. What happens if you break it then? Harry asks. You die. Ron replies, well, that seems serious. <laughs> oh my goodness, yeah. Harry doesn't exactly need any more convincing that Snape is really on the side of the darkness. Never, he isn't.
1: Yeah, I remember you were saying four seconds ago about yeah. Harry being right.
0: Yeah, well, he's <laughs> almost right. He's so close to being right. But hearing this will only strengthen his certainty regarding Snape and Malfoy alike and his resolve to find them out. But in the meantime, sprouts must be peeled, which, as Fred and George are all too happy to point out, Harry and Ron still have to do with their hands like dirty muggles, as neither is yet 17 years old. Ah, the cruel limitations on underage magic and the cruel ruminations of older brothers. How, they ask, did Ron's relationship with Lavender, Lav-Lav, come to be? How, they ask. Is it, did she sustain... Such extensive brain damage. That's rude.
1: Very mean. It's hard to make room for jokes, given the sheer volume of bodies at the burrow. Piling up. Mrs. Weasley's putting Bill with the twins. Floor with Ginny. Which will definitely stop Bill and Floor from fucking, like wild
0: beasts. We're sure that'll work, Molly. There are closets, there are hallways, there's fields around the burrow. There's all manner of places. Everywhere you look, romance and the knives that
1: Ron's thrown that George has to magic into paper airplanes. Fill the air! We're off to the village, George tells Ron and Harry. There's a very pretty girl working in the paper shop who thinks my card tricks are something marvelous. Almost like real magic. (laughs) These guys, man. At least someone's thinking about something other than Malfoy and Snape, because Harry sure isn't. As soon as the twins leave, he tells Ron that yes, he's going to tell Dumbledore about what he overheard, and he's not stopping there either. Quote, I'm going to tell anyone who could put a stop to it, he says, noting that he plans Mm -hmm. to revisit the matter with Arthur too. Ron predicts rightly that Arthur and Dumbledore and everyone else will likely reply in kind by telling Harry that Snape's just faking it to get dirt from Malfoy. They didn't hear him, said Harry flatly. No one's that good an actor, not even Snape. Now, Harry will be proven wrong here, as it'll turn out that Snape is, in fact, an all-time Oscar-worthy performer, capable not only of fooling the Dracos and Narcissas and even the Bellas of the world when he needs to, but of duping Lord Voldemort himself. Across the battlefields of the Second Wizarding War, the moves and countermoves are dizzying, with allegiances and intentions often blurred. In Snape's case, with some parties in both camps fully convinced of his loyalty and his treachery alike, the deception was always going to prove so complete on one side or the other that it transcended even the standard double agent label.
0: Harry didn't get a chance to debrief Hermione before holiday break, having seen her just for a moment the morning after the party, at which point from the book, Ron and Lavender had been saying a thoroughly nonverbal goodbye. Lavender, a physical being as well. But he's sure that not even Hermione will be able to deny that Malfoy at least is clearly up to something from the book. Harry felt fully justified in saying, I told you so, which he had done several times to Ron already. He's been waiting to do an I told you so to Hermione for several years, I think. (laughs) On Christmas Eve, Harry finally gets a chance to speak to Arthur. He's been, quote, working very long hours at the ministry— and presumably needs a nap. Finally, <laughs> with Celestita Warbeck blaring a cauldron full of hot, strong love. One of my favorite tunes. One of Molly's very favorite <laughs> tunes. She's got some of that boiling. Let me tell you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> These lyrics, by the way, are overtly—they're overtly, overtly about a man's ability to induce a female orgasm. A
0: hundred percent, whatever. <laughs> it's about fuck Molly. Loves this song. it. Do you it. remember, Arthur, how we used to listen to this song <laughs> as teens? Oh, yes, I do, Molly. Still got the marks. I still got the marks. And floor blaring even louder, much to Mill's chagrin, Harry and Arthur engage in conversation at last. Let me just say, floor a little rude in this case.
1: Yeah, like, read the room. This read is important r- to Molly.
0: Yeah, I, so you don't need to be like,
1: this is awful. What is this? <laughs>
0: Terrible. The beat does not even slap.
1: She probably thinks that the love is overcooked because it's in yeah. Britain, you know?
0: Arthur shares that as busy as things have been at the mystery, <laughs> he's not convinced <laughs> any of the three folks they've managed to arrest are real Death Eaters, mm. including
1: mm-hmm.
0: our friend, mm-hmm. Good Stan Shunbike. Yeah. <laughs> he says, the top levels want to look as though they've been making some progress, and three arrests sounds better than three mistaken arrests and releases. Harry has yet to interact with Scrimger directly, and certainly wasn't sorry to see Corn Fudge's reign of incompetence end, but his exposure to the new minister now consists of subtext-heavy newspaper clipping, a very temperate assessment from Dumbledore, and this concerning insight from Mr. Weasley. Fudge did not get anything done. But if Scrimmature is getting the wrong things done, is that better? Right. If a move is made just for the sake of saying it occurred, what does that actually achieve?
1: Harry then shares with Arthur what he overheard between Snape and Malfoy. Lupin, who's sitting nearby looking thin, very careworn, listens in too. As Ron warned and as Harry anticipated, Arthur's initial response is, Snape was just pretending, using his spy craft mm-hmm. to gain intel. tell. And again, especially in light of how often we are rightly praising Harry for actually being on it regarding Malfoy's subterfuge, we feel compelled to note that everyone is right in this respect. This will prove to be exactly what Snape was doing, and Harry just refuses out of hand to even consider it. Here, Harry pushes back, not with rage or impatience, however, but with an actually pretty reasonable question. This is sort of refreshing to see. Socratic method here from Harry. Let's (laughs) interrogate this. But how do we know, he says. Lupin says it isn't their business to know. Quote, it's Dumbledore's business. Dumbledore trusts Severus, and that ought to be good enough for all of us. Now, Harry has, of course, heard this or something like it, countless times before, including from Dumbledore himself. But in addition to what his eavesdropping revealed, something else has recently changed his mind, too. His view of Dumbledore's infallibility. In opening up to Harry and the lost prophecy at the end of Order of the Phoenix and showing his own vulnerability, his own imperfect side, Dumbledore displayed marvelous humanity. But he also inadvertently gave Harry an opening to continue to question Snape, But, Harry says to Lupin, just say, just say Dumbledore's wrong about Snape. People have said it many times, Lupin replies. It comes down to whether or not you trust Dumbledore's judgment. I do. Therefore, I trust Severus. But Dumbledore can make mistakes, Harry argues. He says it himself. The irony here is so rich, so complex. It's gutting in a way that the most tangled human tendencies tend to be. Dumbledore is not mistaken about Snape. But the act that forever seals the trust between them... Cementing the strength of their allegiance will be the same act that fully convinces Harry until the reveal on the Prince's Tale, of course, that Snape is on Voldemort's side. Snape killing Dumbledore. Dumbledore opened up to Harry about his fallibility in order to bring Harry in closer to get him to trust him more. But the concession gave Harry more reason to doubt, at least where Snape is concerned.
0: Harry shifts tacks away from Dumbledore, which won't lead to headway in a room of his loyal lieutenants toward. "'Snape is a person, always more likely to bear fruit. "'Do you honestly like Snape?' "'He asks Lupin, who answers with the kind of depth and heart and care "'that we expect from him. "'They're not friends,' he concedes. "'But he's grateful to Snape for helping to care for his lycanthropy "'by brewing the wolfsbane potion, and he did it perfectly.' Mm -hmm. "'From the book, "'Maybe he didn't dare mess with the potion with Dumbledore watching him,' "'said Harry. "'You were determined to hate him, Harry,' said Lupin with a faint smile. "'And I understand. "'With James as your father, with Sirius as your godfather,' you have inherited an old prejudice. Such a good line. Potent line, cutting to the heart not only of the bile always boiling near the surface between Harry and Snape, but to the ingrained bias that exists in so many of us toward many things, clouding our ability to clearly decipher the intentions of others, and sometimes in ourselves. Lupin encourages Harry to share this latest intel with Dumbledore, but not to hope for a receptive audience. From the book, it might have been on Dumbledore's orders that Severus questioned Draco, Lupin says. And we learn in Howells that, of course, he is correct.
1: As Mr. Weasley attempts to prevent a floor mill feud with the interruption of ample eggnog, (laughs) always an effective strategy, Harry asks Lupin what he's been up to. Neither we nor Harry has seen him in quite some time, actually. We learn he's been underground. Quote, almost literally, that's why I haven't been able to write. He says that he's been living among the werewolves. Quote, nearly all of them are on Voldemort's side. Dumbledore wanted to spy, and here I was, ready-made. And the description from the book here reads, he sounded a little bitter, mm-hmm. and perhaps realized it, for he smiled more warmly as he went on. I'm not complaining. It is necessary work, and who can do it better than I? Though Lupin quickly tries to mask it, that bitterness is notable. Mm-hmm. A reminder not only of the costs of war, but of the toll that Dumbledore specifically sometimes asks his troops to pay. Dumbledore is a kind and charismatic man, genuinely committed to helping others discover their value and to fighting for the triumph of good. Lupin has felt an unbelievable, unrivaled amount of gratitude toward him for the opportunities and trust that he's shown him. But Dumbledore also knows what's required to achieve that triumph. And Lupin has been living among monsters, not because he's the only redeemable werewolf, but because society has made many werewolves feel that they're monsters. He says that most of them support Voldemort because they've been forced to live on the margins, stealing, killing to eat. They crave the freedom that Voldemort's reign would provide. Quote, and it is hard to argue with Greyback out there.
0: Readers, of course, have heard this name from Snape in Spinner's End when listing the other Voldemort supporters who failed to find the Dark Lord after his fall. And, of course, Draco's conversation with Borgen in Borgen and Burks in Nocturn Alley when Draco used his name as a threat strong enough to secure Borgen's cooperation. Harry doesn't remember hearing Draco use the name and asks Lupin who Greyback is. He says, Fenrir Greyback is perhaps the most savage werewolf alive today. He regards it as his mission in life to bite and to contaminate as many people as possible. He wants to create enough werewolves to overcome wizards. This would, by the way, be a threat to Voldemort's order. That he doesn't care, doesn't view it as such, is yet another example of how he operates. He uses people as a pawn until... He doesn't need them anymore, and then he'll surely get rid of Fenrir Greyback at that point in time. He needs agents who can advance his cause in the here and now, but he'll discard them at the earliest necessary convenience. Voldemort, Lupin says, has promised Greyback prey in return for his services, and this is horrifying. Bite them young, he says, and raise them away from their parents, raise them to hate normal wizards. Voldemort has threatened to unleash him upon people's sons and daughters. It is a threat that usually produces good results. Terrible. A reminder not that we needed another one into the true carnage that Voldemort is willing to allow, even endorse and encourage, in order to claw his way to power. Lupin knows, from the book again, it was Greyback who bit me, he tells Harry. Lupin's father, we learn, had offended Greyback. For ages, Lupin pitied the werewolf who bit him, knowing himself what it felt like to lose control. But Greyback is not like that, he says. At the full moon, he positions himself close to victims, ensuring that he is near enough to strike. He plans it all. Consider the shape of evil that Voldemort is currently bringing into the world. Dementors on the loose, breeding out in the open, sapping hope and cheer from masses of people, giants wreaking such havoc that their doings resemble natural disasters, werewolves who seek an unencumbered path to viciousness, looking to maim at will and overcome the wizards who shun them, looking to bite children, including Voldemort's own followers, by the way, in Fury, who reduce their victims to bloody heaps, and that's to say nothing of the Death Eaters. Last episode, we explored the implication of Dumbledore's message to Harry about Voldemort's disinterest in friendship, his incapacity for love. They are deluded, he said, of those who believe they have Tom Riddle's affection, or can ever earn it. We can see it here. He pays no mind to the moves that will be necessary for his own supporters to undo the things that he is doing one day to try to make the world habitable for their families. But he doesn't care isn't considering how he'll one day rule over the despair that he ushered in. He only wants power.
1: Harry has something else that he wants to ask Lupin. Have you ever heard of someone called the Half-Blood Prince? Lupin is not, which is a tough break for Harry's theory that James, who he saw using Levi Corpus, one of the prince's spells, in the memory. Lupin's reply is hilarious, but very tough. There are no wizarding princes, said Lupin, now smiling. Is this a title you're thinking of adopting? <laughs> I should have thought being the chosen one would be enough. Very tough luck for our guy Harry Potter right here. <laughs> Harry recovers from this shade and explains he's trying to identify the former owner of his potions book and he mentions Levi Corpus. Lupin says that was
0: in vogue That's during very his stay at Hogwarts. Big fad in my time. I love the idea that there's certain spells that like have their time and then oh, go yeah. away, like is it like one hit wonders kind of?
1: Well, I mean, they're all just wearing Hogwarts robes like something has to be the fashion I, I love of the day. I love that idea <laughs> and of course it was in vogue Snape was his classmate and Snape as we'll learn invented it but Lupin clearly has no idea that Snape was the one who crafted the spell which is interesting nor that Snape fashioned himself the half-blood prince moniker Lupin says that spells go in and out of fashion and that the spell's popularity during his day at Hogwarts doesn't necessarily mean that it was invented then His smile as Harry spoke had been, quote, a little too understanding. And without Harry even having to put the question in his heart into words, Lupin answers it for him, Mm -hmm. anticipating it. James was a pureblood Harry, and I promise you he never asked us to call him prince. Though, I could see it. (laughs) Prince prongs. (laughs) Harry's found more than just potions class help in the prince's book. He's found new confidence, new imagination. His desire to link that growth that he is experiencing, to his father, to his father's friends, to the past, is quite endearing. Not yet willing to let go of that desire, he asks Lupin, was it you? Was it serious? Definitely not, Lupin says.
0: The next morning, Harry wakes to Ron's distressed, revolted exclamation. She's got to be joking! He's holding his holiday gift from Sweet Love, a thick, golden chain necklace from which dangles the words, My sweetheart, it is... Cuffing season, ladies and gentlemen. Ron asks how Lav could possibly think that he'd like that. Well, think back, said Harry. Have you ever let slip that you'd like to go out in public with the words, <laughs> my sweetheart round your neck? Ron's answer is straight out of Hermione's Goblet movie playbook. Well, we don't really talk much. It's mainly snogging. Well, yeah. The very next thing he says is, quote, is Hermione really going out with McClagan? which is... Subtle, yeah. Harry has a horrifying present of his own—a parcel full of beautiful maggots from creature. How wonderful! Touching, quite disconcerting. <laughs> it's nice that he thought to send something, <laughs> is it? At Christmas lunch, a tense Tonks-centric moment passes between Lupin and the Milf, and Harry, still unaware of the true cause of Tonks' despair, asks Lupin about her changing Patronus. Like, Awkward conversation round the table. Mary. <laughs> From the book, Lupin took his time chewing his turkey and swallowing before saying slowly, sometimes great shock an emotional upheaval. Just as Harry begins to deduce that the form could be an ode to Padfoot and prepares to pose this theory to Lupin, who is, of course, the actual inspiration for the Patronus, Molly shrieks to Arthur that Purse is approaching the house.
1: Our good friend Chris Rankin. Love him. Unfortunately, the great git, not Chris Rankin, Percy. <laughs> <laughs> Percy's the git. Chris the Rankin, Chris wonderful human great. being. Isn't there to bury the hatchet with his family and apologize for being the world's biggest prat. He is once again placing his job above his family, putting his parents through this emotional turmoil of thinking he'd really come back into the fold, only to realize that he hadn't, just so he can bring Scrimgeour to their door, too, specifically, Harry. Scrimgeour's greeting is a manipulative lie. He says he and Percy were in the area working and Percy, quote, couldn't resist dropping in and seeing you all. This is really gross, yeah. using the family's pain and separation as an in, as a source of political leverage. And it's not like the Weasleys are strangers to him. Arthur works for this guy. Under Scrimgeour's new regime, remember, Arthur got promoted to department head. If he's willing to treat people he knows this way, what will he do to people he doesn't know? Arthur and the twins watch Percy with stony-faced expressions. But Molly's joy is overt and heartbreaking to behold. Mm -hmm. She is so overcome that she's even mixing up her words. Have a little perky or some tooting, I mean, she says to the minister. This is just devastating. Fucking Percy, what an asshole. Molly deserves better. Harry, to his credit, has a read right away. He's not fooled. When Scrimgeour replies to... Molly's offer for a meal by saying, no, no, my dear Molly, Harry deduces that he must have asked Percy for her name in advance. (laughs) And then he makes his move, saying, no, they're just here for five minutes. Then we'll be off. Says he'll just take a stroll around the garden while the family catches up. Would anyone care to guide him? Anyone, anyone at all? Quote, ah, that young man's finished. Why doesn't he take a stroll with me? He is talking, of course, about Harry. Quote, the atmosphere around the table changed perceptibly. Everyone looked from Scrimgeour to Harry. Nobody seemed to find Scrimgeour's pretense that he did not know Harry's name
0: convincing. Harry knows that this has to be the reason that Scrimgeour and Percy are here, under pretense of just popping in. He wants to speak to Harry alone in a rare moment when Harry is not under Dumbledore's watchful eye. Lupin moves to rise. Arthur's about to say something. They're not fooled either. But Harry presses, fine. Harry is smart and inquisitive. He asks Dumbledore right away what Scrimgeour is like, and he actually wants to get his own read now. The through line for Harry has been a thirst for information. Here he can get some of his own with his own eyes from the book. I've wanted to meet you for a very long time, said Scrimgeour after a few moments. Did you know that? No, said Harry truthfully. It's another thing that Dumbledore has kept from him, in this case with Harry's best interest at heart. Oh, yes, for a very long time, but Dumbledore has been very protective of you, said Scrimgeour. Natural, of course, natural after what you've been through, especially what happened at the ministry. He mentions the Chosen One rumors, and Harry concedes that he and Dumbledore have discussed it, but says nothing more. When Scrimgeour asks what Dumbledore has told Harry, Harry says, Sorry, but that's between us. Dumbledore has been clear with Harry. It's imperative that he trust Ron and Hermione, his dearest friends, and not shoulder the burden of the prophecy alone, but it's also very crucial that no one else learn the truth of it or the lessons that Harry and Dumbledore are now engaging in. It would not do, Dumbledore said, if word spreads about how much he knows or suspects about Voldemort's secrets. Clearly, Dumbledore doesn't trust Scrimgeour or his methods. But more broadly, he's cautioned restraint and care. In many ways, he's passed down to Harry his prejudice, the instinct for secret keeping. that kept his past with Grindelwald, Snape's past with Lily, and Harry's standing as a horcrux, a secret from Harry. In others, he's instilled in Harry a wise caution, a healthy reluctance to share what could then be used to undo you. Scrimgeour
1: says, in any case, does it really matter whether you are the chosen one or not? (laughs) And Harry, again, truthfully says, I don't really know what you mean, dude. Well, of course, to you it will matter enormously, said Scrimgeour with a laugh. (laughs) But the wizarding community at large, it's all perception, isn't it? It's what people believe Mm -hmm. that's important. Ah, here it is. The reason for the visit. The reason, we can deduce, for the rift between Scrimgeour and Dumbledore. Scrimgeour and the Ministry want to use Harry as a mascot, a symbol, a tool, to assure the public that they're making moves, even if they aren't making the right ones. Scrimgeour tries to puff up Harry's ego, praising his heroism regardless of the chosen one label, applauding how many times he's bested you-know-who. You are a symbol of hope for many, Harry, he says. (laughs) The idea that there is somebody out there who might be able— who might even be destined to destroy who must not be named. Well, naturally, it gives people a lift. Now, what's so interesting about this is this is actually true. (laughs) Yeah. As is so often the case, the fumblings of those in power aren't always purely about the fundamental nature of their position, the substance of what they're saying, but rather how they seek to try to act on it. Scrumgear is right to believe that Harry gives people hope. That's been true since the day that Harry first thwarted Voldemort. But to try to turn him into a pawn, this glowing marquee touting, we're working hard here so that the ministry can placate people who have very, very good reasons to be deeply afraid is a real shame. He tells Harry that he should consider it his duty to stand alongside the ministry, which, remember, felt no duty to stand by Harry after Voldemort returned from the graveyard, which, in fact— worked to actively discredit Harry to turn such a blind eye to his protection that one of its employees sent a mentor's after him and allowed a reign of oppressive, tyrannical terror to take over at Harry's school.
0: The gnome that Harry is watching in the garden has, at this point, gotten hold of a worm and is mm-hmm. tugging it, trying to get it out of the earth. The symbolism is not hard to spot, and it's not hard to spot for Harry or us. He asks what exactly the minister wants. What are you digging at? Not much, Scrim says. Pop into the ministry from time to time. From the book, give the right impression. When he's there, he adds he can speak to the head of the aura office from the book again. Dolores Umbridge has told me that you cherish an ambition to become an aura. Wrong move. Pump the brakes. Uh, yeah. Again, read. My guy. It. Again. <laughs> let us read the room. You were almost doing well. It was a no, but it wasn't a fervent, like, get the fuck it out of here. It was an inquisitive no. It was an inquisitive no. <laughs> it's a hard no now. Well, that could be arranged very easily. (laughs) Nothing, of course, about Harry's life has ever been easy. And this blatant attempt to bribe him disgusts Mm -hmm. Harry as much as the reveal that Umbridge is still gainfully employed. Harry, wiping away the web of uncertainties to stare clearly into the eyes of Scrimger's intentions, says that popping into the ministry won't do. That gives the impression that Harry approves of their methods. And he says, I don't like some of the things the ministry is doing, locking up Stan Shunpike, for instance. Harry, like Dumbledore, is something of a revolutionary. Unlike Dumbledore, who'd be the first to admit this, Harry is perfectly equipped to challenge authority because he himself has never craved the throne. He's an outsider, complete outsider. Mm -hmm. Harry's stubborn and willful, but he's a savvy skeptic too. And he's grown as he's matured and he's suffered more than anyone should ever have to. His skepticism and his courage have morphed to forge the bold boy who stands here now, able to say, you're making Stan a scapegoat. Just like you want to make me a mascot, Scrimgeour turns icy. I see. You prefer, like, your hero Dumbledore to disassociate yourself with the ministry. I don't want to be used, said Harry. Such a good moment for Harry. It's really good. The thing is, like, I understand being as charitable as possible as Scrimgeour. I get where he's coming from. You have to put the ask out at least, right? The view of the ministry is terrible. We've got a lot of responsibility on our shoulders here. How can we make people feel a little better? Let's see if we can get Harry in. Here's an idea. Ask him how they can actually help him bring down Voldemort. Right.
1: but Maybe actually try to work with him.
0: Actually try to support him. They're not interested in that. That said, I understand his position, but it's like, this is not the way to do it. (laughs) Before Harry's ultimate clarity from Dumbledore and King's Cross in Deathly Hallows, he'll feel that he has been used in a way that he has never previously conceived of, that he surely cannot even imagine. Here, it's all very clear to him. As Scrimgeour tries to recover, apologizing for being rude about it not mattering whether Harry is the chosen one. Harry says, no, it was honest. One of the only honest things you've said to me. You don't care whether I live or die, but you do care that I help you convince everyone you're winning the war against Voldemort. I haven't forgotten, Minister, and he raised his... Right fist. So good. They are shining white on the back of his cold hand where the scars which Dolores Umbridge had forced him to carve into his own flesh. I must not tell lies. This is one of the moments where the reader is overcome with pride. You just feel like, yes!
1: So proud of Harry.
0: Watching Harry find his confidence and his command, ready not only for the moves of the enemy, but to understand that the enemy can come in many forms. Even the people who are on your side can be against you. Mm -hmm. And to be ready to make some moves of his own and to stand up for... What's right? To not let things that have gone by the wayside that were clearly unjustified, not let them just be forgotten.
1: I don't think he ever had a problem standing up for what was just. It's like the development of recognizing all the yeah. different forms that it takes. Mm-hmm. It's just great. Scrimgeour abandoning all pretense, asks Harry, all right, like, this isn't working. Let me just go right for it. What, what's Dumbledore doing? What's yeah. he up to? Where's he going when he's not at Hogwarts? Spill. And Harry, of course, doesn't actually know the answer, but says... Just flat out that he wouldn't tell him even if he did. Well, then I shall have to see whether I can't find out by other means, Scrimgeour says. And Harry replies, you can try, but you seem cleverer than fudge. So I'd have thought you'd have learned from his mistakes. He tried interfering at Hogwarts. You might have noticed he's not minister anymore, but Dumbledore's still a headmaster. I'd leave Dumbledore alone if I were you. This is just iconic. An iconic showing from Harry, it really is. Scrimgeour sees that he's lost. There's nothing." that he's going to gain from this conversation. He miscalculated gravely in coming here today in this fashion in approaching Harry in this way, trying to pry Harry away from Dumbledore, period, but certainly away from his clutches by approaching Harry in a moment when he wasn't in the headmaster's care. By doing that, he forced Harry to consider the differences between the men and their methods, leading Harry's already bone-deep allegiance to Dumbledore to rise even more starkly to the surface. Dumbledore's man through and through, aren't you, Potter? Scrimgeour says. Yeah, I am, Hmm. said Harry. Glad we straightened that out. The quote continues. And turning his back on the Minister of Magic, he strode back toward the house. Great stuff.
0: Chapter 17, A Sluggish Memory. Farewell at the Burrow is emotional, following Percy's. Painful exit and Mrs. Weasley's breakdown. She begs Harry to stay safe. I always do, Mrs. Weasley, said Harry. I like a quiet life. You know me. (laughs) Back at school, Hermione greets Harry and Ginny, ignoring Ron, and tells them the new password is... Are you ready, Ron? (laughs) Abstinence. (laughs) Delightful tone setter, as Ron and Ginny's respective relationships with Lavender and Dean are poised quite soon to crumble, as Ron and Lavender stand, quote... Locked in a kind of vertical wrestling match. Hermione asks, how was it at Wan-Wan's? <laughs> Truly incredible. Harry asks if she can drop it.
1: <laughs> this is so good.
0: From the book, it was the fat lady who drank a vat of 500-year-old wine, Harry, not me. <laughs> what an icon.
1: What a lord! Oh, she's amazing. This whole stretch where she just starts calling him Wan-Wan mockingly is like yeah, perfection. It's pretty, pretty great. <laughs>
0: They catch up on Snape and Malfoy, and it goes exactly as Harry expected. She argues the same point about Snape's likely ruse, but also concedes that Malfoy is quite clearly up to something. Mm-hmm. However, she's not willing to accept that Malfoy is actually working for Voldemort. From the book, hmm, did either of them actually mention Voldemort's name? When Harry catches her up on Lupin, she reminds him that he's heard the name Fenrir right Greyback before. Remember in Borgen and Burkes. This gets Hermione closer than ever to believing that Malfoy really might be in Voldemort's circle. But even here, she's not all the way in from the book. There is the possibility it was an empty threat. Harry cannot believe this stubbornness. (laughs) We'll see who's right. You'll be eating your words, Hermione, just like the Ministry. He is quite sadly correct, even though the truth of Snape's allegiance and the plan with Dumbledore will take another year to discover the result at Book's End, atop the Astronomy Tower and across Hogwarts, will reveal how right Harry was to suspect Malfoy, who will manage to smuggle Death Eaters and Greyback into the school and still remain free at story's end. It's hard here not to recall. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, 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 Very tough stuff. Listen, he let Death Eaters and a slavering, rampaging werewolf who has dedicated his life to biting children into a school for children. It's bad. (laughs)
1: It's bad.
0: (laughs) He should not in any way be free. And if he is going to be free, he can never hold a wand again. You know, like, you want to let him out? Fine. But he can never do magic again. He can never be part of the Wizarding World again. That's it. He's out. It's insane that he's allowed to just (laughs) do stuff. Anyway. Anyway. (laughs) <laughs> it's hard here not to recall what Harry thought to himself in Order of the Phoenix after his towering row with Seamus <laughs> after to the woke feast. <laughs> They'll know we're right in the end, thought Harry Man. miserably. Yeah. Yeah. It was bad enough when that lament was directed toward the likes of Seamus and nameless Hogwarts students and daily prophet readers who doubted his and Dumbledore's account for it to be proving this difficult after everything Harry has been through it. Everything that has informed his theory to convince his closest friends, Uh people who have been very right to push him and challenge him in the past, aware as they are of his shortcomings and his tendencies, remains a great tragedy. The new term brings some change, however. It's time for apparition lessons for the sixth years who are 17
1: or set to be before August 31st. Side note, 12 galleons for this, like for an essential means of wizarding travel, and just it seems being like a person in the wizarding world, seems steep. The kids are, understandably, in a tizzy. Quote, a great deal of store was set by being able to vanish and reappear at will. Rightly so. After Ron mentions that Harry has traveled via side-along apparition before, Harry is besieged with requests to tell everyone what it feels like. Uh, it feels like shit. It doesn't <laughs> It feels not great. It's handy, but boy, does it feel like shit. Harry only stops talking about this when it's time to head off for his third lesson with Dumbledore. He notices that the headmaster's hand doesn't appear to have healed at all. And months have passed. Months. This is highly ominous. Dumbledore begins by broaching Harry's meeting with Scrimgeour. Yes, said Harry. He's not very happy with me. No, sighed Dumbledore. He's not very happy with me either. We must try not to sink beneath our anguish, Harry. (laughs) But (laughs) (laughs) Babylon. What a legend. Dumbledore reveals that the idea to pair Harry with the ministry in such fashion, and this will stun everyone to hear, hold on to your hats, was originally corn fudges. <laughs> a last desperate effort to grasp onto his post. But the idea survived him. And as soon as Scrimgeour took the post, he demanded Dumbledore arrange a meeting. You don't demand things of Dumbledore. Literally rule number one. Harry shouts that this must have been the argument the prophet reported. And we get another just... Outstanding line from Dumbledore, who is really on one all book. The prophet is bound to report the truth occasionally, said Dumbledore, if only accidentally.
0: Harry tells Dumbledore that Scrimgeour accused him of being Dumbledore's man. Through and through. How very rude of him. I told him I was. Dumbledore, we see here, gets emotional from the book. Dumbledore opened his mouth to speak and then closed it again. Behind Harry, Fox the Phoenix let out a low, soft musical cry. To Harry's intense embarrassment, (laughs) he suddenly realized that Dumbledore's bright blue eyes looked rather watery and stared hastily at his own knees. When Dumbledore spoke, however, his voice was quite steady. I am very touched, Harry. So nice. What a wonderful moment and encapsulation of the beautiful bond that Harry and Dumbledore have forged. And consider what we know about Fox and his magic. We learned that in the chamber that only real loyalty to Dumbledore could have called the phoenix to Harry's side in the Chamber of Secrets where he was hanging out with his very close personal friend Tom. (laughs) Fox cry here is another testament to the force and integrity of their bond in the moments when readers and Harry question Dumbledore's methods. And those often will come fast and furious soon. We tend to look first at the conversation in King's Cross and Hallows when the full clarity of Dumbledore for and belief in Harry becomes clear. But there are so many other moments dotted across the series where the sincerity of his affection is quite clear. Among the many we saw in The Lost Prophecy when he explained that caring for Harry too much was the source of his mistakes. And we'll see it on the swim back from the cave. And we see it here when he's moved to tears by knowing how very deeply Harry cares about him. And how fully Harry stands behind him.
1: So wonderful. Love that. There is, of course, a pragmatic significance at play here, too. In addition to the emotional heft that this moment carries, and the essential proof that it provides about how much Harry and Dumbledore care about each other, it also shows that Dumbledore can count on Harry to remain loyal, focused, fierce. This will have... Huge consequence. Mm-hmm. It's imperative in terms of the ultimate Horcrux hunt that will soon unfold, but it's also hugely important in terms of the memories Harry is about to see and the ensuing task that he is about to receive. Before we dive into the pensive, however, we learn that Scrimgeour has attempted to have Dumbledore followed. Quote, amusing, really. So- <laughs> he said Dolish to tell me it wasn't kind. <laughs>
0: Dollish. Just getting dumped on left and right. Also, like, I guess he's the best guy they have? That's the thing.
1: (laughs) I've already been forced to jinx Dollish once. I did it again. Is not well. The greatest well. regret. Does <laughs> not bode well. Gotta think that Kingsley is actually like superior, but just because of his right, other mission, he's, he's, he's been able to evade being in the position of having to yeah. try to tail Dumbledore. Such a flex from Dumbledore. Once it's clear that Dumbledore still isn't ready to tell Harry where he's been going either, Harry mentions Snape and Malfoy. And the emotional note of the meeting swings quite unpleasantly. Dumbledore takes his time before replying to Harry's story and then tells Harry... Push it from his mind. And Harry, of course, cannot accept this. He is sick of people dismissing him. And he's been waiting all holiday to share this with Dumbledore in particular, anticipating, listen, foolishly it must be said. What did he think was going to change mm-hmm. here? But anticipating a more satisfying response. And this next exchange is an all-timer. Professor, did you understand? Yes, Harry. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: fucking amazing. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Blessed as I am with extraordinary brain power. (laughs) I understood everything you told me, said Dumbledore a little sharply. I love that that he gets annoyed here. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I think you might even consider the possibility that I understood more than you did. (laughs) This
0: is just savage. I love that he's how close Dumbledore is to being like, because I said so, Harry. (laughs) God. (laughs)
1: Now, on the one hand, this is extraordinarily fair from Dumbledore. He has been honest about the fact that he hasn't been telling Harry everything, including where he's been going when he disappears from school, what happened to his hand, why exactly they're looking at these memories, and why specifically he trusts Snape. Whenever Harry asks about those topics, Dumbledore says, don't worry about it. Yes. (laughs) On the other hand, why isn't he telling him these things? Does he really expect Harry to stop asking and for Harry's resentment to stop festering if the information that Harry has doesn't change? Yeah. The Occlumency Lesson debacle could not have made it plainer that Harry and Snape will never be able to overcome their mutual prejudice on their own, while alive, at least. In <laughs> honoring his promise to Snape and in working to ensure the undisturbed integrity of his master plan, Dumbledore continues to miscalculate this. Particular cost, or at least to assume that it's something everyone can recover from. The inevitable counter moves, physical, emotional, and mental, mm-hmm. that will stem from the move of not telling
0: Harry why he believes Snape. And of course, Dumbledore knows all about this moment between Snape and Draco, because as has been posited, they are in fact in cahoots. Yes. Snape is in fact questioning Draco on Dumbledore's express orders. Dumbledore's disquiet here is not about Snape's loyalty. He's ironclad about that. Ironclad. It's about Harry and what missteps might stem now from this unforeseen event. Harry overhearing them. Harry seething finally goes too far. So, sir, said Harry in what he'd hoped was a polite, (laughs) calm voice, you definitely still trust I have been tolerant enough to answer that question already, said Dumbledore, but he did not sound very tolerant anymore. Yeesh. My answer has not changed. Pull back, Harry. Pull up. <laughs> My God. Let's tap him. Let's pull up here. Bad. Dumbledore insists that they turn to the lesson. Harry sits, quote, feeling mutinous. <laughs> Dumbledore, rightly reading Harry's resentment, says, ah, Harry, how often this happens, even between the best of friends. Each of us believes that what he has to say is much more important than anything the other might have to contribute. I don't think what you've got to say is unimportant, sir, said Harry stiffly. <laughs> Dumbledore knows Harry well, certainly well enough to anticipate that his actions here and the way this conversation is played out could lead Harry to do something reckless. Uh He's very concerned about it. There's a cause and effect at play with Harry, and the seriousness with which he believes his concerns are taken directly influences how recklessly he behaves. It's true for many of us.
1: At least there's something else to turn Harry's attention to here. Two new memories, quote, both obtained with enormous difficulty, and the second of them is, I think, the most important I have collected. Oh, go on. We meet this evening. Dumbledore says, to continue the tale of Tom Riddle. And he tells Harry that young Tom arrived in secondhand robes at Hogwarts and was sorted immediately into Slytherin House. Quote, he showed no sign of outward arrogance or aggression at all. As an unusually talented and very good-looking orphan, he naturally drew attention and sympathy from the staff from the moment of his arrival. He seemed polite, quiet, and thirsty for knowledge. Nearly all were most favorably impressed by him. Of course, we saw in The Secret Riddle how a young Tom was, how able to read and play his marks. Harry asked if Dumbledore warned the other teachers about what he'd seen and learned at the orphanage, and he did not, thinking it unfair to poison others against Tom, wanting to give Tom a chance to make a fresh start. And here again, we see the impulse we discussed at length last episode to grant the second chance that he himself got. Unsurprisingly, in light of their argument mere moments ago about Snape, This tendency really stands out to Harry, though he doesn't know Dumbledore's personal history or how that's surely motivating him. Mm -hmm. Harry thinks to himself, quote, here again was Dumbledore's tendency to trust people in spite of overwhelming evidence that they did not deserve it. But before Harry can go too far down this dark rabbit hole, he remembers something else. Again, with Dumbledore, the complexities are always at play. Dumbledore didn't trust Tom, not really. The riddle who came out of the diary, a.k.a. Harry's,
0: Great Very good. Close. Close. They knew so much about each other. (laughs) Dear friend.
1: (laughs) Told Harry as much. Quote, Dumbledore never seemed to like me as much as the other teachers did, that Tom said. Dumbledore reiterates here in his office that he kept a close eye on Tom, but never gleaned much. Quote, he was very guarded with me. He felt, I am sure, that in the thrill of discovering his true identity, he had told me a little too much. He was careful never to reveal as much again, but he could not take back what he had let slip in his excitement, nor what Mrs. Cole had confided in me. However, he had the sense never to try and charm me, as he charmed so many of my colleagues. Much of why Dumbledore is the only one that Voldemort ever feared stems from Dumbledore's unrivaled magical knowledge and prowess, but much more of it stems from this idea. Dumbledore saw too much of the true Tom, the being beneath the mask, It's no accident that Dumbledore is returning to the past to try to prevent Voldemort's future. As Hermione said earlier in Prince, our weaknesses are in our history, in the choices that we've made, the true selves that we've worked either to bring further to the fore or to bury beneath a facade. Dumbledore saw this. Voldemort does not know that Dumbledore is working to track down others who saw it too or saw something like it. But he doesn't need to know that to fear him, their own history. Is enough.
0: Dumbledore tells Harry that as Tom Riddle advanced through school, he gathered about him a dedicated group of followers that carried, quote, a dark glamour in the castle. And this is fascinating the way he describes this. Yes. He describes them as, quote, the weak seeking protection, the ambitious seeking some shared glory, and the thuggish gravitating toward a leader who could show them more refined forms of cruelty. In other words, they were the forerunners of the Death Eaters. Some of them, in fact, became the very first Death Eaters. Their time at the school saw many nasty incidents, though they were never satisfactorily linked to them, including, of course, the opening of the Chamber of Secrets and Myrtle's death. Dumbledore shares that he's struggled to secure many memories of Riddle's time at Hogwarts. From the book again, few who knew him then are prepared to talk about him. They're too terrified. And the keepers of the trophy room, where his name proudly stood for all these years, what he's gleaned, he's done so through considerable effort. From the book, after tracing those few who could be tricked into speaking, after searching old records and questioning muggle and wizard witnesses alike. Tricked into speaking. A sign here at the lengths to which Dumbledore will go and the desperate measures necessary to fight this threat. From the book, those whom I could persuade to talk told me that Riddle was obsessed with his parentage. Of course he was. We saw hints of this even at the orphanage, and we saw in the Riddle who emerged from the diary that As a teen, he had discovered the truth of his father's identity, the truth of his link to Slytherin on his mother's side, and decided to shed his muggle father's name. Dumbledore confirms all of that here, saying he believes Riddle, quote, dropped the name forever after failing to find any trace of his father at the school, then turned his attention to investigating his mother from the book, the woman whom you'll remember He had thought could not be a witch if she had succumbed to the shameful human weakness of death. His only clue was the name Marvolo, finding at last the existence of Slytherin's surviving line. As a 16-year-old, he set out in the summer to find the Gaunts, and that's what this first memory involves. A memory Dumbledore says he was, quote, very lucky to collect. Man,
1: 16. They dive in. They're back at the Gaunts, though it's, quote, more indescribably filthy than anywhere Harry had ever been. And there's a man sitting alone, lost in a sea of hair and dirt. And there's a knock at the door. That man opens it to reveal, quote, a boy Harry recognized at once. And of course, who wouldn't recognize a good friend? Quote, tall, pale, dark-haired, and handsome, the teenage Voldemort. The ball of hair and filth freaks you. He thinks it's the muggle from the village. That's how much Tom Riddle looks like his father. Riddle commands him in Parseltongue to stop and then moves into the room unafraid, totally in command. Quote, Harry could not help but feel a resentful admiration for Voldemort's complete lack of fear. Tom asks for Marvolo, and the man, who we learn is Morphin, says he died years ago. When Morphin pushes his hair out of his eyes, Harry spots Gaunt's blackstone ring on his hand. Morphin says, I thought you was that muggle. You look mighty like that muggle. And then in response to Riddle's questioning provides enough clues to allow young Tom to deduce that the muggle in question must be his father, the father he spent so long searching for and failing to find, the father who so let him down by not wanting him, by not being magical, by not being worthy of his idea of himself. In Morphin's ramblings, he reveals that his sister, Tom's mom, took Slytherin's locket before she went. And we can deduce that this is when the object came onto Tom Riddle's radar. That this is when he first decided he had a right to it, a claim to it, and mm. set out to seek it. Not only finding it in time, but turning it into one of the casings for his soul. And at this point, quote, unnatural darkness falls on the memory, and Dumbledore pulls Harry out of it.
0: In his office, he tells Harry it went dark because Morphin couldn't remember anything more. When he awoke the next morning, he was alone, and Marvolo's ring was gone. Young Tom, as we'll see in the next memory, Stole it, using his first murder, that of his father and grandparents, to make his first horcrux. Back in Little Hangleton, Dumbledore continues, the bodies of Tom Riddle Sr. and his mother and father were found. From the book, the Muggle authorities were perplexed. As far as I am aware, they do not know to this day how the Riddles died, for the Avada Kedavra curse does not usually leave any signs of damage. The exception sits before me. Dumbledore added with a nod to Harry's scar. Quite chilling. Yes. Read this in context of a conversation about Voldemort's horcruxes. The Ministry, Dumbledore continues, knew this was a magical murder from the start and knew a convicted Muggle hater lived nearby and had previously attacked one of the victims. They called on Morphin and he admitted to the murder, boasting of his pride and handing over his wand, which was the weapon in question. He later died in Azkaban, muttering about Marvolo's lost ring. Harry deduces what Dumbledore already is laying out. Voldemort stole Morphin's wand and committed the murders. Then, He implanted a false memory of the crime in Morphin's mind, stole the ring, and left. Harry's baffled, given that Morphin had this true memory in him, which surely the authorities could have used to deduce what legally occurred. But Morphin didn't just hand this over. Dumbledore, a highly skilled legilimens, secured in the last weeks of Morphin's life. From the book, by which time I was attempting to discover as much as I could about Voldemort's past. He tried to use the memory to free Morphin, but Morphin died before Dumbledore was able to succeed. And anyway... Why would they look that far? They have the guy. He admitted to the crime. His wand showed that it was indeed the murder weapon in question. Why look further?
1: Sounds like a plot for Law and Order. Yeah. Harry, furious as he always is at any sort of injustice, asks how come the ministry couldn't detect that Tom Riddle had done magic. Quote, he was underage at the time. Dumbledore reminds him that the ministry detects the magic, not the perpetrator. And Harry, of course, was blamed for Dobby's hover charm and Chamber Secrets and Wizarding Homes, Harry Hears here, parents really have to enforce underage magic because the ministry can't detect who in the home is performing the magic. Morphin, while a vile human who abused other people and was not a good guy, still did not deserve to die for these crimes, which he did not commit, nor to die without control over his own faculties. But other people do have control over their own faculties, enough control, in fact, to amend them. And that brings us to the second memory of this third lesson. Harry is silent as Dumbledore pulls the file, recalling the headmaster's words about this being the most important memory he's procured. Quote, Harry noticed that the contents proved difficult to empty into the pensive, as though they had congealed slightly. Did memories go bad? And now a quick break for a word from our sponsors.
0: Binge Mode is presented by Universal Orlando Resort.
1: Experience the fun and excitement of Universal's Islands of Adventure. Universal Studios Florida in
0: Universal's Volcano Bay. There's a Universal Hotel for every single style and budget. And now there's a brand new hotel that puts you right in the heart of the action. Ooh. Universal's Aventura Hotel is sleek and stylish with commanding views of all three theme parks from its very own rooftop bar.
1: Plus, when you stay at one of Universal Orlando's hotels every morning, you can breeze into one of three amazing theme parks via water, taxi, or shuttle an hour before guests
0: and as the sun sets on days filled with thrills the night awakens with a frightening chill at universal studios florida now through november 3rd halloween horror nights brings together stories and visions of the most notorious creators of horror and takes them to the next level
1: this year, time twists and turns on itself. Ripping cinematic greats, cult classics, Ooh. and even original nightmares from decades past into a new era of fear. Yes! It's more terrifying haunted houses than ever. Ow!
0: Ow! Ow! But no matter what time of year you visit Universal Orlando Resort, you'll find exciting events to make your vacations more epic.
1: Go to www.universalorlando.com to plan your visit today.
0: Binge mode! It's also brought to you by Damsel, a new young adult fantasy novel by National Book Award finalist Alana K. Arnold. A prince slays a dragon, rescues the girl, and they live happily ever after, right? Not in this story. Damsel is a dark, twisted, and boldly feminist take on classic fairy tales where one girl must learn to navigate a terrifying world where she soon realizes her choices are not her own. Not everything is
1: as it seems, and dragons might not be the greatest danger she has to face.
0: Claire LeGrand, New York Times bestselling author of Furyborn, calls Damsel searing and audacious with an ending that will leave you howling at the moon, a must for every collection. Damsel is
1: available now wherever books and audiobooks are sold. Visit epicreads.com for more information. And now back to Binge
0: Mode. They fall into the memory in front of someone Harry recognizes at once. Young Horace sluggy, a little younger, thick, shiny ginger hair. He's sitting in a winged armchair, his feet kicked up on a velvet poof, wine glass in one hand, vat of crystallized pineapples in the other. Or how else would you not recognize a guy that loves those pineapples? My God. (laughs) Calm down with the pineapples. Half a dozen boys are sitting around him, including young Tom. From the book, his right hand laid negligently upon the arm of his chair. With a jolt, Harry saw that he was wearing Marvolo's golden black ring. He'd already killed his father. I love the way that she puts that negligently. Uh-huh. Like, you know, he's just with aggressive casualness displaying the ring for everyone to see, but also just kind of you know, just putting it out there. That's it. Uh-huh. This is really, really jarring. Even though we know that Tom Riddle opened the chamber and killed Myrtle as a student, know that he killed this young. Knowing that he manipulated his friends and foes alike, there's something unshakable about seeing him sitting here relaxed, totally calm, in polite company, a token of his murder on his hands. He is a sociopath, clearly, and just a handful of years after we first met him at the orphanage, after he learned the truth of his magical powers, he wears his violence, his lunacy with comfort and ease. Mm -hmm. He makes small talk with Slughorn about Professor Mary Thought's retirement. Slughorn praising him. The other boys casting him admiring looks from the book. What with your uncanny ability to know things you shouldn't and your careful flattery of the people who matter? Thank you for the pineapple, by the way. You're quite right. It is my favorite. And then, suddenly, mid sentence, the room fills with fog, obscuring everything that Harry can see, leaving Harry only to hear Slughorn's voice ringing through You'll go wrong, boy. Mark my words. Then the fog clears. And no one in the memory remarks upon the fog. The clock strikes 11 and Slughorn dismisses the boys, calling out the cuck, Lestrange, and Avery. Both feature Death Eaters. By name, Voldemort stays behind as the others leave. And Harry can tell he wanted to get Slughorn alone from the book. Sir, I wanted to ask you something. Ask away then, my boy, ask away. Sir, I wondered what you know about about Horcruxes. And the fog fills the room again and Slughorn's voice booms. I don't know anything about Horcruxes and I wouldn't tell you if I did. Now get out of here at once and don't let me catch you mentioning them again. Mm-hmm. Dumbledore, who's described as smiling serenely as this transpires, <laughs> pulls Harry out of the memory. I love that. Harry is stumped. Yeah. What is going
1: on here? Especially in light of Dumbledore's claim that this was the most important installment in his collection. Quote, as you might have noticed, said Dumbledore, receding himself behind his desk, that memory has been tampered with. Okay, this is it. The truth at last of why Dumbledore needed Slughorn back at school and why he needed Harry to get into Slughorn's good graces. Mm -hmm. Dumbledore's entire recruitment of Slughorn has been a move to secure essential information. Professor Slughorn has meddled with his own recollections, Dumbledore says. And why, Harry asks. Well, why do any of us run from something that we've done, right? Quote, because, I think, he is ashamed of what he remembers. He has tried to rework the memory to show himself in a better light, obliterating those parts which he does not wish me to see. What's more. He's done so badly in responding to Dumbledore's quest for this information by poorly hiding it. Maybe because part of him wants to come clean. Maybe because it's not his particular skill. Maybe because the truth of the thing is just too forceful to keep down via any attempted countermove. But Dumbledore, who has sincere affection for Slughorn, we should say, yes. says here, this is actually good news. Quote, it shows that
0: the true memory is still there beneath the alterations. Moves and their countermoves are not binaries. There are degrees in between actions that breed reactions and then that breed other actions. And so the cycle goes, chains of events, cause and effect, consequences that continue to unfold. Harry is now part of this chain, receiving from Dumbledore his first direct task. It will be your job to persuade Professor Slughorn to divulge the real memory, which will undoubtedly be our most crucial piece of information of all. Dumbledore hasn't been able to get it. Because doing so isn't a matter of force. It's a matter of will. Mm -hmm. Harry can get it not through magical coercion, but through a human connection. Convincing Slughorn that sharing the truth is right. What's more, Slughorn, Dumbledore notes, is just on guard. Slughorn is good, right? And he's going to be aware that Dumbledore wants this. And thus, he's going to be ready for legitimacy, veridiceum, and any other thing that Dumbledore might try. From the book, he is much more accomplished at occupancy than poor Morfin Gaunt, and I would be astonished if he has not carried an antidote to Veritaserum with him ever since I coerced him into giving me this travesty of a recollection. Plus, Dumbledore doesn't actually want to drive Slug away, which is very important. For all his p- yes. faults, he's a wonderful teacher and a sweet, if misguided, man. Yes. He's also a Slytherin who happens to play well with others, a valuable potential very. bridge between houses in time of war. Also, realize... That driving him away means likely driving him into, into the arms, the arms of, of the enemy. Of yep. the Death Eaters.
1: Absolutely. This has to be done delicately.
0: Delicately from the book. However, he has his weaknesses like mm-hmm. the rest of us. And I believe that you are the one person who might be able to penetrate his defenses. Then.
1: Abruptly. Without explaining any of this. Yes. Without Harry being like, what's a Horcrux? <laughs> Dumbledore dismisses Harry. Taken aback by the quick conclusion to the night's events, he heads out, hearing, as he does, the following exchange. Our guy, Phineas Nigelus, stays in these pages. Yep. I can't see why the boy should be able to do it better than you, Dumbledore. I wouldn't expect you to, Phineas, replied Dumbledore and Fox, gave another low musical cry. (laughs) So good. From the beginning of this story, we have understood that there are all sorts of magical abilities and gifts. Think of Neville. Mm -hmm. and the points he earned for standing up to his friends in stone. Dumbledore the tactician knows what he's doing here, yes, playing on Slughorn's weakness for a famous name. But Dumbledore the human being also knows that Harry's rare empathy, the force of love in his life, will allow him to succeed here. Lily's love for Harry saved him. Snape's love for Lily protected him. And Slughorn's love for Lily will arm Harry with the knowledge that he needs to thwart Voldemort. It's one of the story's many reminders that the heart is mightier than the wand. When Dumbledore told Harry that they wouldn't know how important the memory was until they procured it, he meant that they needed the specific information about Voldemort's horcruxes, the number which the true slughorn memory will point them toward. The full knowledge of that number and the nature of Voldemort's moves that they can then plan to counterattack. But, in a way, the most important thing was in the room with them all along
0: as Dumbledore's comments to Phineas reveal he knows Harry's heart. Chapter 18, Birthday Surprises. Harry shares his homework assignment with Ron and Hermione, though separately as Hermione is still repulsed by Wanwan's dry humping out here in the streets, just fucking over-the-clothes dry humping with lav and general life choices of Mr. Weasley. Ron, in classic Ron fashion, thinks Harry will be able to get the memory from Slug just like that. He loves you. What will refuse you anything, will he? Not his little potions, prince. This is funny, but also wildly misguided from yes. Ron. <laughs> if it was that easy, why would Dumbledore have framed it so seriously? Hermione naturally, naturally <laughs> sees this. This from the guy who was like, why would it be important to know about Voldemort? <laughs> Boy, Ron. (laughs) Tough stuff for Ron. All that fucking has drained the blood (laughs) from his brain. (laughs) (laughs) Hermione naturally sees this, saying Slug must be determined to hide the truth if Dumbledore couldn't immediately get it out of him. From the horcruxes, horcruxes. I've never even heard of them, she says. Uh And this should tell you how sensitive this information is. Hermione has never heard of them. Mm -hmm. And Harry is bummed to hear this, but it's also telling. This isn't typical stuff. This is a special kind of magic, a special kind of awful. From the book, they must really be advanced dark magic, or why would Voldemort have wanted to know about them? Why indeed? From the book, again, I think it's going to be difficult to get the information, Harry. You'll have to be careful about how you approach Sloghorn. Think out a strategy. Harry's earlier line about Malfoy not being one of the world's greatest thinkers was good for a laugh, but this line from Hermione is worth Thinking about. Harry often acts based off of instinct. His courage and desire to do the right thing lead him. And that's when he's at his best, when he can just react. No shade at him, right? He is, after all, five and oh against Voldemort. But he'd be the first, in fact, was the first in his opening DA meeting to say: hey, a lot of that was luck mm-hmm. and guts and just reaction. Planning out a strategy, that's Hermione's thing. Uh-huh. So this is new ground for Harry. And not necessarily something that plays to his natural talents. And spoiler alert, he'll wind up succeeding thanks to him the aid of a magical object that, as we highlighted in last episode's restricted section, amplifies the drinker's extant abilities and makes him highly adaptable to change. Meaning it's playing on the skills Harry already has and the approach he'd already use, tweaking the context to allow him to succeed. It's almost the opposite of a plan. It's literally to boost in his ability to wing it and win.
1: In Potions, the students set about learning Gopalot's third law, foreshadowing the coming need for an antidote. Harry can't master the theory at play here. Really, no one but Hermione can. This is advanced. And as she gleefully points out to Harry, the prince can't help him here. This is responsive magic based on the specific components in front of you. Quote, you have to understand the principles involved this time, she says. No shortcuts or cheats. Slughorn checks in, ready to praise Harry. He's overcome by the stench of bad eggs. (laughs) Quote Hermione's expression could not have been any smugger. Great. This is so funny. This is a classic Prince stretch when there's so much dark, serious stuff of consequence happening, but also just hilarity. It's a a fucking phenomenal balance. As Harry keeps turning his book's pages, he sees the key, quote, just shove a bizarre down their throats. Harry racks his brain. Where have I heard that before? And then he recalls why the term is familiar, Snape's very first potions lesson, quote, a stone taken from the stomach of a goat, which will protect from most poisons. He knows that he's not really performing the task at hand here, and also that he'd never risk this move if Snape were his professor, though true LOL moment here. He's literally following Snape's advice. (laughs) Two times over.
0: (laughs) This that's one of the great Things that just jumps out of so you good. on a reread. Oh God, is like it's so him good. shitting on Snape in his mind. As he's literally Suspecting his... him of doing all manner of things. Meanwhile, following in his footsteps. Literally following in his footsteps. Literally his handwritten instructions. Unbelievable stuff. <laughs> but this is the only movie he has
1: left and especially now, when he needs to butter up Slughorn to ask for the memory. He can't risk jeopardizing his reputation right. as Slughorn's favorite boy, Potions Potter, as it were. Not quite as nice as Patronus Potter, but it'll do. He runs to the storeroom and finds a Beezer just as time is winding down. And when Slug reaches him, Harry holds out his hand.
0: Oh, this is incredible stuff right
1: here. (laughs) Shriveled kidney in his palm. Quote, Slughorn looked down at it for a full 10 seconds. Harry wondered for a moment whether he was going to shout at him. Then he threw back his head and roared (laughs) with laughter. You've got nerve, boy, he boomed. Hermione is livid. (laughs) Quote. This is so funny. Her half-finished antidote, comprising
0: fifty-two ingredients, including a chunk of her own. Hair. She really went all out. Also, the descriptions in that whole passage—like Harry's looking over now, she's got ten decanters and oh all these crystal flasks—and yes. like
1: so good.
0: <laughs> Bubbled sluggishly behind Slughorn,
1: who had eyes for nobody but Harry.
0: Slug tells Harry it's still useful to know how to mix antidotes. And hopefully, our boy learned that before he became an Auror, we hope. This does seem imperative. But for now, he's buttered up Slug enough for him to try and broach the memory. Everyone's annoyed at him for finishing first (laughs) by doing literally nothing. So they leave in a hurry. Even Ron, Harry alone, approaches Slughorn. Sir, said Harry, reminding himself irresistibly of Voldemort. I wanted to ask you something. Again. Mirroring Voldemort's exchange that he saw in the memory, chilling. Slughorn, in a moment he'll quickly come to regret, tells Harry to ask away, <laughs> sir. I wondered what you know about about Horcruxes. Man, chills. Line for line, Born. word for word, Born. pause for pause. Yep. Even the pause after about. It's the mirror image of what Tom Riddle said to Horace Slughorn back in that modifying Amazing. memory terrible form by Harry, putting Slughorn (laughs) instantly, instinctively on guard, forcing him to recall that moment that he's run from four years, the source of his shame, and keying him in on the fact that Dumbledore must be behind this. It's too on the nose. Not exactly a subtle effort, but brilliant craftsmanship from Rowling, no surprise here, drawing not just another link between Harry and Voldemort, but creating an actual mirror image of the event. We have to assume that even though Slughorn knows Harry is there on Dumbledore's orders, there's still a part of him, however small, that might be thinking here. Uh Uh-oh. Here we go again. Yep. Another brilliant boy, destined for greatness. So talented. Coming to me for guidance, poised to tumble forever into the abyss because of what I might say. Slughorn freezes in response to Harry's question. From the book, his round face seemed to sink in upon itself. He licked his lips and said hoarsely, what did you say? Harry repeats the question, but before he can even finish it, Slughorn interrupts. Dumbledore puts you up to this. His manner changes completely now, shocked, terrified. He mops his sweaty brow. He asks Harry if has shown him the memory. Harry decides not to lie, which is smart mm-hmm. in the moment. Mm-hmm. Well, if you've seen the memory, Harry, you'll know that I don't know anything. Anything! He repeated the word forcefully. About horcruxes. Harry pursues Slughorn as he tries to flee, saying he thought there might be a bit more to the memory. Did you? Then you were wrong. Weren't you? Wrong. And he slams the door in Harry's face.
1: Not the demeanor we're used to from Slughorn here. Yeah. It's fair to say that, went about as poorly as it possibly could have, a rushed, unconsidered attempt to try something that Harry should have known from Hermione's advice, from his knowledge of Slughorn's prowess, and from the mere fact that Dumbledore set him this task because it was so hard, would require real effort and fortitude. Hermione's too pissed about the bezoar to be sympathetic, and Ron is too, but for different reasons. Quote, Ron was resentful that Harry hadn't slipped him a bezoar too. Stay tuned, Juan Juan. Yeah. Harry's next strategy is to let (laughs) Slughorn think that he forgot, just forgot about it all. Quote, it was surely best to lull him into a false sense of security before returning to the attack. So basically, Harry's first plan was to act without any forethought or consideration for what reaction in Slughorn his actions would cause. And his next plan is just to do nothing. (laughs) Hoping the choice he made, in essence, erases itself. Impressive stuff from The Chosen One. No no wonder the ministry wants in. (laughs) Love you, Harry. Though to Harry's credit, this new tact at least softens Slughorn toward Harry again. He's hoping for a Slug Club invite and better circumstances for another sneak attack, but no such invite comes. Slughorn may be acting kindly to Harry in class, but he's still clearly on guard. Quote, Meanwhile, The Hogwarts Library had failed Hermione for the first time in living memory. (laughs) There's no mention anywhere of what a Horcrux can do. Again, highly notable. She's even looked in the quote, most horrible books in the restricted section, but nothing's there. Nothing of substance, at least. All she's found is one passing reference in the introduction of Magic Most Evil quote, of the Horcrux, wickedest of magical inventions, we shall not speak nor give direction. More proof that what they're dealing with here is not your run-of-the-mill evil. If only Harriet asked Dumbledore what they are so that he could set about crafting his counter move most effectively. It would have been honestly just interesting to see how Dumbledore dodged the question. I agree.
0: <laughs> Remember what the prince book jacket said. Quote, as in all wars life goes on, it's time to learn to operate, folks. The instructor looks... "Quote, oddly colorless, insubstantial apparition, where you can splinch away your body parts if you do it poorly, and where even doing it well diminishes your very substance over time." Harry wonders to himself when he sees this person. Is like, I wonder if apparating that much has done this to him. Wild. McGee snaps at Malfoy to be quiet. He'd been arguing with Crab and Harry. Naturally, is intrigued by this. His antenna goes up. The instructor reminds him that it's usually impossible to apparate or disapparate within Hogwarts, but that Dumbledore has lifted the restriction just in the Great Hall for one hour only. Note, we assume some similar temporary lifting of the restriction will wind up explaining the apparition onto the Hogwarts ground that we see in the first Fantastic Beasts Crimes of Grindelwald trailer. Harry sneaks over to be closer to Malfoy, trying to eavesdrop. I don't know how much longer I'll write Malfoy shot at him, oblivious to Harry standing right behind him. It's taking longer than I thought it would. Then he says that it's none of their business what he's up to. You and Goyle just do as you're told. Interesting. So Malfoy's friend's friends, air quotes, clearly helping as he boasted to Snape, but they don't know anything. He is to some extent operating alone. Harry, incapable of resisting, says, I tell my friends what I'm up to if I want them to keep a lookout for me, considering how much he's learned now. The four times he's spied on Malfoy, Nocturne Alley, the Hogwarts Express with Snape in here. Crazy short-sighted from Harry not to just remain quiet and see what else they say. Wild. Truly Um, wild. Now, the other, maybe he could tell from Malfoy's tone that he was just done with crap. He was dismissing it. In a game of chess, though, you would hope that Harry could be more patient. needs to wait out the moves until he knows what he's facing so he can make his return moves. Malfoy, unsurprisingly, does not let this shit talk slide and continues dropping valuable intel in earshot. He spins and his hand flies to his wand, but stops when the teachers call for quiet, bringing him to his senses.
1: The rest of the lesson passes with a mixture of high comedy and high horror and some delightful shit talk from Hermione to Ron. I think I felt something the last time I tried, a kind of tingling in my feet, Ron says. I expect your trainers are too small, Wanwan." one <laughs> said a voice behind them, and Hermione stalked past, smirking. Savage. After the lesson, Harry runs back to his dorm to fetch the Marauder's map. Ah, I solemnly swear that I am up to no good, he says, or Malfoy is anyway. <laughs> Malfoy's in his own common room, but Harry resolves to keep an eye on the map moving forward to try to suss out what exactly Malfoy's doing. He checks in regularly over the coming weeks, but never spots Malfoy. He does, however, spy Crab and Goyle on their own, more often than is usual. Sometimes, quote, remaining stationary in deserted corridors. He doesn't piece together the placement of the corridor in question. In these moments, Malfoy's nowhere on the map at all. Strange. We will learn. Soon, that this is because he's going to the room of requirement, which doesn't yep. show up on the map. At least, this course of action from Harry, while still playing into his ever growing obsession, shows a level of diligence and care. He's actually scouting, he's trying to gain real intel. And even more surprisingly, he's doing so without rushing into danger himself. He's doing this from the comfort of his common room
0: or his dorm, some semblance of privacy and restraint. Next trick to Hogsmeade is canceled. No surprise. After what happened to Katie, though, Ron is bummed, given that the trip was set for his birthday. He's about to have a great birthday. All he has to look forward to is his apparition test. Students are still struggling mightily to master the skill. From the look, frustration was running high, and there was a certain amount of ill feeling towards Wilkie Tycross <laughs> and his three Ds, which had inspired a number of nicknames for him, the politest of which were dog breath and Dunghead. Exceptional, but we still need another D guys. <laughs> On the morning of Ron's birthday, Harry tosses over a present, then opens his trunk and begins rummaging for the map. In the course of this rummaging, we'll learn in a few moments. He accidentally tosses the chocolate cauldrons from Romilda's last term over Ron's way, and Ron, assuming they're a present for him, eats them. Love potion and all. As Harry scans the map for Malfoy, unable to locate him, Ron offers Harry a candy. Ron has three, and then as Harry summons him for breakfast, Ron changes. Something's wrong. He's leaning against his bed, staring at the rain with a strangely unfocused look on his face. He says he's not hungry. After a few innocuous but puzzling exchanges, Harry notices that Ron looks pale, nearly sick. He says, I can't stop thinking about her, said Ron hoarsely. Harry's uncomfortable. From the book, friends they might be, but if Ron started calling Lavender Lav-Lav, he would have to put his foot down. Then Ron says he doesn't think, quote, she knows he exists and harry is like what are you talking about you guys are like dry fucking like everywhere he says she definitely knows you exist said harry bewildered she keeps snogging you doesn't she ron blinks who are you talking about who are you talking about said harry with an increasing sense that all reason had dropped away from this conversation ramil Vane, said ron softly His whole face seemed to illuminate as he said it, as though hit by a ray of purest sunlight. Incredible. This whole sequence is incredible. Harry asks if this is a joke. I think, Harry,
1: I think I love her, said Ron in a strangled voice. Harry approaches him and demands that he repeat what he just said with a straight face. Quote, have you seen her hair? It's all black and shiny and silky. And her eyes, her big dark eyes. And her, and her what, Juan Juan? Harry's like, joke's over, my guy, drop yeah. it. And then he turns to walk away, at which point Ron literally punches him in the head. <laughs> his face contorted with rage. Harry whips out his wand, uses levy corpus to get Ron in the air. What was that for? Harry bellowed. You insulted her, Harry. You said it was a joke, shouted Ron, who <sighs> was slowly turning purple in the face as all the blood rushed to his head. Finally, Harry spots the box of candies and, quote, the truth hit him with the force of a stampeding troll. Dun, dun. Dun, dun. Ron thought they were a present, but as Harry notes, you just picked them up off the floor, didn't you? Ron Weasley, ladies and gentlemen, nearly almost killed because he eats food that isn't his off the floor.
0: (laughs) Um, Classic Ron.
1: (laughs) Harry tells Ron that they're the candies Romilda gave him, spiked with love potion. Harry, why did you not throw these away exactly? (laughs) Like, why did you keep these in your (laughs) trunk to then toss them aside casually
0: later? Great question.
1: But, quote, Only one word of this seemed to have registered with Ron. Romilda? Did you say Romilda? Harry, do you know her? Can you introduce me? All of this is happening while Ron is hanging upside down in the middle of the air. This is just high comedy. And Harry sees an opening here. He tells Ron, yes, he'll introduce him. And he's using this as a ploy to get him to Slughorn's office for an antidote. And as they walk, they pass Lavender. You're late, Wanwan, she pouted. I've got you a birthday. (laughs) I wonder what her birthday present was. Leave me alone said Ron impatiently. Harry's going to introduce me to Romilda Vane. Very tough stuff here for our girl Lavender Brown.
0: Sluggy answers at the door and he's not happy. He says, I generally sleep late on Saturday. Must be nice for the slug man. Harry asks Slug to whip up a cure for Ron, playing to Slug's ego and desire to be admired by saying he'd take Ron to Pomfrey, but, quote, we're not supposed to have anything from Weasley's Wizard Wheezes and, you know, awkward questions. Slug says, well, surely, Harry. An advanced potions master is yourself. The blood of your mother running in your veins should be able to whip up an antidote in a jiffy. And Harry plays the worried friend card and Ron helps sell it quickly by moaning after Romilda and trying to elbow his way into the room. Is she in there? (laughs) He eyes Ron with professional interest, asking if the potion was old and noting that they can actually get stronger if you just let them sit. He implores Slug for help by telling him it's Ron's birthday. Slug has never done a damn thing for Ron, making him feel like shit time and again. But here, he comes to his aid, and not a moment too soon. From the look, Ron burst through the door into Slug Slughorn's <laughs> overheated, crowded study, tripped over a tasseled <laughs> footstool, regained his balance by seizing Harry around the neck, and muttered, she didn't see that, did she? It's one of my all-time favorite paragraphs. <laughs> so funny. Slug hands him, quote, a tonic for the nerves, telling him how handsome he looks, and as Ron gulps down the antidote, he comes back into himself, a look of, quote, utmost horror on his face. Ron sinks into his chair in despair as Slug looking for a pick-me-up immediately again, thinks, let's give the kids alcohol. <laughs> At least Ron's of wizarding age now. It's also breakfast time. Yeah, it's wild. Breakfast time. Here, have a drink, my boy. It's 10 a.m. He settles on a
1: bottle of oak-matured mead that he says he'd been meaning to give to Dumbledore for Christmas. Oh, notable. Nothing like a fine spirit to chase away the pangs of disappointed love, he says. They laugh, and Harry begins to maul, how to pounce on this... Nearly private, vulnerable, guards down moment with Slughorn. This is peak Harry, readying to act on impulse, responding to the circumstances. And if not for what happened next, he might have had some luck, actually. Mm-hmm. But just as Harry's contemplating getting Slug good and drunk, Slug passes out the glasses, calling Ron Ralph. <laughs> And Ron guzzles down the mead. Quote, there was one second, hardly more than a heartbeat, in which Harry knew there was something terribly wrong, and Slughorn, it seemed, did not. Ron drops his glass, crumples, begins to jerk uncontrollably, foam dribbling from his mouth, his eyes bulging. The mead, again, an intended gift for Dumbledore, is clearly poisoned. Slughorn is paralyzed by what is transpiring. What? But Ron's turning blue. He's about to die. And Harry... Again, his instincts kick in, and he runs to the potion stores and rampages through until he finds a bezoar. Snape's words twice over here, though he doesn't know it's Snape both times, playing in his mind. He shoves one into his best friend's nearly lifeless mouth. Quote, Ron gave a great shudder, a rattling gasp, and his body became limp and still.
0: Troubling. Very. <laughs> Chapter 19, Elf Tales, the Bezor. Harry's quick thinking save Ron's life, but he's still in grave condition. Unconscious in the hospital wing, friends and family, minus Percy, of course, gathered around. Even Fred and George were there, somber. They had been in Hogsmeade looking to buy the boarded-up Zonkos and intended to surprise their baby bro on the day he came of age. From the book, when we pictured the scene, said Fred, he was conscious. Harry recounts the tale for the twins, having done so for Dumbledore and countless others already. From the book, Hermione gave an almost inaudible sniff. She had been exceptionally quiet all day. They begin to discuss the poison. Fred asks if Slughorn would have been able to slip it into the drink, maybe aiming for Harry. Think maybe he's a Death Eater. Could he be under the Imperius? Could the poison have been in the bottle? Meant for Slugger himself, or for Dumbledore, the gift's intended target. We'll learn soon that it's the last one. Malfoy, controlling murder, had her poison the mead, but here, Harry's not ruling out that Voldemort would want to eliminate Slug. Slug had been hiding for a year, after all, and now that Harry knows about the memory— He knows that Slug has information that Dumbledore clearly thinks will prove vital to taking down Voldemort. Could he have been a target? When Hermione chimes in at last, Ron, in response to her voice, croaks, "Er Hermione. It's a heart-wrenchingly wonderful moment. Ron, barely alive, not cognizant enough to let his immaturity or his insecurity hold him back, shows his true feelings here, creaking out the person most on his mind.
1: Hermione makes a series of astute observations. There's a connection, she says, between the attacks, other than the fact that the victims are all on the Gryffindor Quidditch team. Mm -hmm. They should both have been fatal, but they weren't, thanks to lucky breaks. What's more, neither the necklace nor the mead seems to have reached its intended mark. Of course, she added broodingly. That makes the person behind this even more dangerous in a way because they don't seem to care. How many people they finish off before they actually reach their victim. This is really well spotted on Hermione's part here. The perpetrator, Draco, we will learn, actually is methodically working on his master plan to infiltrate Hogwarts via the vanishing cabinet portal. But he's acting recklessly with these side plots, desperate to improve his odds simply by increasing the volume of his attempts, no matter the cost. Neither of these vessels was super likely to reach Dumbledore. The the mead could have. The necklace, no way. But Draco didn't care at all about the collateral damage. He nearly killed two fellow students. That's really hard to justify or forgive or Mm -hmm. redeem in any way. It's also really hard to counterattack. How do you battle an enemy who isn't acting rationally? Mr. and Mrs. Weasley enter, and Molly seizes Harry. Oh, Harry, what can we say? You saved Ginny, you saved Arthur, now you've saved Ron. And Arthur adds, well... All I can say is that it was a lucky day for the Weasleys when Ron decided to sit in your compartment on the Hogwarts Express area. Oh.
0: Harry, Hermione, and Hagrid leave the family alone. Hagrid hasn't been in Prince much, but it's nice to find comfort in the familiar. And as soon as he's back in Harry's presence in our pages, he starts to spill. Dumbledore's worried sick. He won't say much, but I can tell. He notes that the school can't stay open for long if kids are being attacked. From the book again, Chamber of Secrets all over again, isn't it? After about 12 seconds, our guy has dropped a bomb, saying... No wonder Dumbledore's angry with Snape. Oh, uh, 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 who? And Hagrid tries to backtrack, but Harry has heard enough. He wants to know more. It transpires that Hagrid overheard them arguing by the forest. He tried not to listen, but it was, quote, heated. Harry prods him for specifics. Well, I just heard Snape saying Dumbledore took much for granted, and maybe he Snape didn't want to do it anymore. We'll see this conversation play out in far greater detail with much more context in The Prince's Tale in Hallows when we'll realize... This referred to Snape's promise to kill Dumbledore. Hagrid has no specifics here. Just the follow-up that, quote, Dumbledore told him flat out he'd agreed to do it, and that was all there was to it. Pretty firm with him. And then he said some about Snape making investigations in his house. When Harry gets back to the common room, he thinks about this. He considers every reason that Dumbledore may not have indulged his suspicions, but never once considers that Snape and Dumbledore may have been arguing about something that they're pursuing together as partners.
1: Harry certainly argues with his friends and partners enough for that to at least enter his mind as a possibility. Most Gryffindors are more interested in the coming Quidditch match than in Ron's health, which is a really harsh break for Ron and his (laughs) inferiority complex. Quote, Harry, however, had never been less interested in Quidditch. Hey, finally! We got there at last! Quote, he was rapidly becoming obsessed with Draco Malfoy. Uh, Harry? Becoming? Becoming obsessed? Mm -hmm. Are we... sure? That's the operative word? (laughs) Really? Maybe he should actually be grateful that McGlagan and Lavender keep harassing him about Quidditch and Ron, respectively. Something to force him to think about other things. Balance his mind. Lavender says Ron's asleep every time he goes to see her, and that's news to Harry, for whom Ron is always quite awake. Looks like Wanwan's trying to ghost. Harry swings by to visit Ron before the match, telling him to suck it up and just ditch Lavender. Yeah, just break up with her. This is an amazing reply from Ron. Yeah, well, it's not that easy, is it? Hermione going to look in before the match?
0: (laughs) He added casually. Just classic Ron here. On Harry's way to the match, he passes Malfoy and two girls from the book, both of whom looked sulky and resentful. Ah, we will find out that this is the Polyjuice Crab and Goyle in lookout form. Malfoy laughs when he sees Harry, who asks him what he's up to. You'd better hurry up. They'll be waiting for the chosen captain, the boy who scored whatever they call <laughs> you these days. One of the, quote, girls laughs at the joke and blushes when Harry stares at her. As Malfoy and his stooges around the bend, Harry agonizes over what to do. He's late for the match. But it's also clear that Draco is taking advantage of Quidditch when the entire school is occupied to do whatever he's doing. He barely makes it to the match on time. So late he can't even inspire his team with a speech settling only for, Come on, then! As he's flying, he's thinking only of Malfoy, hoping he can catch the snitch fast enough to whip back up to the castle and catch it on the map. But not even Harry can ignore what he hears booming over the pitch. It's Luna Lovegood, and she's doing commentary, and it is wild. And Harry Potter now having an argument with his keeper, said Luna serenely, while both Hufflepuffs and Slytherins below in the crowd cheered and jeered. I don't think that will help him find the snitch, but maybe it's a clever ruse with Gryffindor down 70-40. McLaggen... <laughs> who is, like, out here trying to be a coach on the field. Let Luna coach. This is my new take. <laughs> takes Peek's bat from him, and as Harry flies towards him to yell, mishits a bludger right into the captain's head. Concussion protocol engaged. Get McClaggan away from other people. Also, McLagan, like, it's one thing to be like, hey, watch your lines, blah, 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 but to take a piece of equipment from someone else who's playing and be like, well, here, you got to choke up on the thing. <laughs> like, it was like, it's, like, <laughs> ludicrous. Absolutely Also, ludicrous. maybe save one goal. Literally save a
1: goal. <laughs> and then talk. And then talk. <laughs> Harry wakes in the hospital wing naturally. His head heavily bandaged. His skull cracked. Quote, I don't want to stay here overnight, Harry tells Madame Pomf. I want to find McGlagan and kill him. I'm afraid that would come under the heading of overexertion, said yes. <laughs> She's the best. Ron is struggling to hide his glee over how badly McGlagan botched the match, which Gryffindor lost, we learn. 320 to 60. Ron asks why Harry was nearly late for the match and then scolds him for getting, quote, getting a bit obsessed with Malfoy. Again, getting? Yeah. Harry's desperate to catch Malfoy at whatever he's doing, and he finds himself thinking that he wishes he had minister's power so that he could set tails. And as he thinks back on the three times that he's been in the hospital wing for Quidditch injuries, he recalls the pain of regrowing bones in his arm and the unexpected visitor who came to him in the night. Ah! And as his thoughts land on Dobby, it hits him. He can set tails. He does have a move to counteract Malfoy's motions with maneuvers of his own. Creature, he says. A signature crack of a house self-operating splits the air, along with the sound of some sort of scuffle. Creature's here, but so is Dobby. <laughs> this is great. Let do fight. Harry casts Mufliato to prevent Madame Pomfrey from hearing. It turns out they're brawling. And Peeves is watching, enjoying the fight, because Creature insulted Harry. and Dobby felt compelled to defend Harry's honor. When Creature calls Harry filthy friend of Mudbloods, the Dobster winds up and knocks out half of Creature's teeth.
0: Brutal. Harry and Ron pull them apart. Harry commands Creature to stop fighting. Master called me, croaked Creature, sinking into a bow even as he gave Harry a look that plainly wished him a painful death. Harry says he has a job for Creature, who replies that he'll do it, of course, because he has no choice. Neat. Dobby naturally volunteers to help instead. Dobby would be honored to help Harry Potter. Harry decides that, you know what, two is better than one in this case, and he tells them, I want you to tail Draco Malfoy. Ron is stunned, as Harry continues. Quote, I want to know where he's going, who he's meeting and what he's doing. I want you to follow him around the clock. Should be noted, Harry. Dobby is employed, is like gainfully employed now. Like, yeah. has a job.
1: Like, round the clock? Yeah. Also, like, what about meals, naps?
0: Just, uh, like... <laughs>
1: This is Give them shifts, at I least.
0: Know. Creature replies, Master wants me to spy upon the pure-blood great-nephew of my old mistress. Oddly specific framing here from the Creech-man, but yeah, that's basically what it is. <laughs> Harry is alarmed at the way Creature said that. and He issues a caveat every caveat and rule he can think of to try and close the loopholes that would allow Creature in any way to fuck with Harry the way he did. Serious, when Creature says, quote, with bitter resentment that Master thinks of everything, Harry is satisfied. (laughs) He's hated Malfoy, of course, since Sorcerer's Stone, and he's been certain since the beginning of this book that he was up to something truly dangerous. Despite actually overhearing four conversations and gaining a ton of intel, Mm -hmm. he hasn't been able yet to... Figure out the specifics of Draco's plan. Catch Draco in the act. Pin any of the attacks on Draco or fully convince his friends even, even his friends, (laughs) (laughs) of the severity of the threat. And here for the first time, he's in a position to break through. To do more than just sit and wonder. Move against the boy. He sure is moving against him and Dumbledore. Let's go, Domster! Yeah. Mal! She didn't see that, did she? Good. (laughs) There's no time for embarrassment, so please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into Ramil Vane's bedroom. Lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we <laughs> need to know <laughs> about love potions.
1: According to Albus Dumbledore's notes on the warlock's hairy heart from the tales, Beatle the Bard, quote, the search for a true love potion continues to this day. But no such elixir has yet been created, and leading potioneers doubt that it is possible. That does not, however, stop prospective potion makers from searching for the right mixture, or at least a reasonable facsimile, to induce feelings of love. All efforts to date, though, have ended up more toward the side of obsessive infatuation than actual love, which... As we know from Dumbledore, among others, is the most powerfully and carefully studied force in the magical world. In Dumbledore's Notes in Beetle, he cites Hector Dagworth Granger, mm-hmm. whom Professor Slughorn highlights in Prince, as the founder of the Most Extraordinary Society of Potioneers, is offering a similar opinion. Quote, "...powerful infatuations can be induced by the skillful potioner, but never yet has anyone managed to create the truly unbreakable, eternal, unconditional attachment that alone can be called love." Because there is no true love potion, there are a variety of imitators, each with their own advantages and disadvantages. Amortentia, which we saw in Slughorn's opening lesson, is the strongest, but there are plenty of others. Some are easier to brew and can be made by students. In Chamber Secrets, Gilderoy Lockhart announces on Valentine's Day that interested pupils should ask Snape for instructions. (laughs) And in Prisoner of Azkaban, Molly Weasley regales Hermione and Ginny with a story about her efforts of brewing a love potion at Hogwarts take molly didn't need to brew a love potion ever no the molly wobbles were working the
0: motion on the molly wobbles (laughs) is something
1: others are more adaptable like the ones fred and george sell at weasley's wizard wheezes whose effectiveness varies by the weight of the target Mm -hmm. and and this is this is cold but this is canon the attractiveness of the provider, in which can be hidden in all manner of consumable objects. And still others are more consistent and reliable, while competing varieties can be fickle in nature. This variety stems from a variety of ingredients, too, though we know of a few commonalities. An ashwinder egg is used as a base in many love potions, just as in Felix Felicis, which might explain the feeling of euphoria induced by both of those products and In Cursed Child. Mm -hmm. Albus Severus Potter and Scorpius Malfoy discuss how a rare and expensive ingredient called pearl dust appears in all love potions. In the Book of Potions, our new friend, Zygmunt Budge, also writes that parts of a rose can be a worthwhile additive too, though he finds that using the flower's thorns instead of its petals can produce unstable effects. Ah, how symbolically apt. Unsurprisingly, these effects can be quite dangerous across the whole range of love potions, particularly when they're allowed to mature, as Ron discovers to his chagrin in this set of chapters. They do wear off, though. Fred and George mentioned that theirs have an average duration of 24 hours, so we can deduce that Merope Gaunt would have had to supply Tom Sr. with frequent doses of love potion to maintain his affection and their fictive relationship for as long as she did. It's a wonder that love potions aren't banned by the ministry. Given their similarity in effect to the Imperious curse, yet they're the Weasleys are. Really. Se- really openly selling a range of them. Really incredible shit from as the Weasles. part of their booming business. As they will learn via the Peruvian instant darkness powder at the end of this book. Perhaps they should have been more careful about tracking who exactly was buying their wares.
0: You know that Fred and George are absolutely lobbying their father to squash any legislation that might, <laughs> that might limit the sale of love potions and imported darkness powders. <laughs> They're like the Koch brothers of the wizarding world. <laughs>
1: Unfortunately, Arthur's not receiving their owls because he's taking a nap. Yes. He's very tired. He's working around the clock. <laughs> Jason? Ron reckons I should just hang back after recording this afternoon.
0: Oh, well, if Wan Juan Juan thinks that, you better do it. After all, when has Wan's Juan judgment ever been faulty? Jason, can't you... No. All right, fine.
1: God. In that case, we better split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Prince chapters 16 through 19. Because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. You go first.
0: One. Oh, Ron, has as we've mentioned quite a bit, flailed a lot romantically in this section of chapters. But one line foreshadows the improvements to come during the holiday break at the borough. From the book, Ron kept shooting Bill and Fleur covert looks as though hoping to pick up tips. Well in hallows, he'll be a loyal reader and evangelizer of 12 fail-safe ways to charm witches. Which, from the book, explains everything you need to know about girls. And which Fred and George gifted to Ron truly, perhaps the nicest thing they ever did for him. He could also just, like, ask, Bill, what do I... Like, I'm trying to... You and Fleur seem to have it great. What do I do? Number two. More than
1: once in this span, Slughorn again mentions Lily's potions prowess when praising Harry. One line in particular we wanted to highlight is really notable in terms of Lily's ultimate Snape connection. Quote, Just like his mother, she had the same intuitive grasp of potion making. It's undoubtedly from Lily he gets it. He is, of course gaining the bezoar tip in question that is leading to this praise from snape just one more clue here about the connection between snape and lily this time in an arena that readers and harry alike intimately associate with severus potions class surely being at or near the top of their class together in this subject earning heaps of praise from slug would have been one more thing over which lily and snape bonded
0: aha splinching mm. it's one of my great fears is the splinch and poor susan bones sue bones said a Vicious stretch already. Splinches her leg in the student's first apparition lesson, priming us for witnessing this horror, which will happen to Ron three times. An eyebrow fragment (laughs) a test. A chunk of arm during the ministry escape in Hallows and a couple of fingernails after abandoning Harry and Hermione. Speaking of apparition, it's notable that Harry says here, quote, I'm not fussed really, I prefer flying, but he'll need to quickly master the skill, apparating him and Dumbledore back to Hogwarts after the cave. When Dumbledore lacks the strength, and regularly relying on the skill in Hallows,
1: imagine just being like, "I'm good. I don't need to learn this." It's
0: first of all incredibly useful. Like among the coolest things, I would just be like, "I'm going to Paris." You'd be checking f- in on Fergus all the time. I'd be, I'd be like, "Listen, I'm going to Hawaii for an hour. I'll be back." <laughs>
1: <Same>. <laughs> Bye. Number four. As Harry and Hermione are debriefing with Hagrid following their visit with Ron in the hospital wing, we get this line quote. Haggard stopped talking as the ghost of a long-haired woman drifted serenely past. This is the Grey Lady, the ghost of Ravenclaw Tower, who will play a key role next book in helping Harry find Mm -hmm. Ravenclaw's diadem. It's no accident that she is alluded to here in the stretch of chapters where Harry first hears the word. Horcrux.
0: Speaking of towers, when Dobby offers to help Harry with whatever he needs, he says... And if Dobby does it wrong, Dobby will throw himself off the topmost tower, Harry Potter. Well, someone is going to be thrown off the topmost tower in mere chapters.
1: Frowny face emoji. It's
0: very, very sad.
1: Sad. Number six, in mentioning the hover charm and alluding to Dobby, Dumbledore draws an explicit connection between underage and house elf magic, while explaining to Harry how the underage restriction really works or doesn't work. Yet another important instance of those two strains of magic being compared in advance of Voldemort, underestimating both of them to
0: his peril. Number seven. A lot of Stan Shunpike mentions here, and one line in particular led to quite a bit of Stan-centric theorizing between Prince and Hallows. Quote, Feeling disappointed, Harry threw the book back into his trunk, turned off the lamp and rolled over, thinking of werewolves and snakes. Stan Shunpike and the half-blood prince and finally falling into an uneasy sleep full of creeping shadows and the cries of bitten children. The parallel structure of that line pairs Snape and the Half-Blood Prince. Once readers finished this book and realized they were one and the same, they wondered if the other key terms, werewolves and Stan Shunpike, might also be matches. They were not, but this lives in our head canon, along with the certainty that Stan is a Death Eater. He is.
1: One of my favorite moments on the internet was everyone being like, Stan's a werewolf. <laughs> this is great stuff.
0: Mal, mm. the important things to remember when awarding a champion are the three Ds, destination, determination, and deliberation. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or idea who captivated us the most. And today, we're dishing out some last-minute points and awarding the house cup to <music> Harry James Potter.
1: Great stretch for our guy yeah. Harry. We really, talked about really, him a really lot. great. Rapid fire highlights here. Ginny pulled a maggot out of his hair, and it gave Harry like goosebumps. Yeah, it, it gave like, down
0: his body. It was just like,
1: oh. listen, if a girl is willing to pull a maggot out of your hair, what won't she pull? Right, then
0: he like took the package and (laughs) dumped the maggots all down his chest and was like, Ginny, help. (laughs) He stands toe-to-toe with Scrimgeour and owns him, showing a real moral fiber and a backbone that is just incredible to see. It's one of those moments where you really take the measure of Harry and go, wow, I've been with this guy since he was a kid. He has grown. And look at how far he's come. It's an
1: incredible moment. He makes... Some headway finally with Hermione regarding Malfoy, given the fenrir nugget. And this is big because he has been just absolutely running up against a wall trying to get any any indulgence mm-hmm. here into the theory. And just this is a door,
0: a door that opens. He sees the memory Dumbledore says is the most important, though, as stated he fails miserably to fulfill his homework assignment, though he gives it the college yeah. try. Ish. The college try in that you didn't do your reading all coursework yeah. and then
1: showed up for the exam anyway. Yeah. That kind of college I mean, try.
0: <laughs> he should have... Yeah, it's just you wish he would have talked it out with Hermione a little bit more and figured out a better way to do it.
1: He manages to finish tops and potions again, though. Even, really wild. <laughs> even <laughs> one
0: time the prince can't tell him how to brew specifically the right potion. Thanks to the Beezor tip. He avoids ingesting Romilda's strengthening and overly ripe love potion.
1: Can't really overstate the fact that he literally saves Ron Weasley's
0: life <laughs> well, saves his life also Ron will be dead if I have to her. say rereading it truly one of the more harrowing oh, yeah. passages in the, like it, it really Terrifying. seems like oh my god are we going to lose Ron here it's horrifying
1: again we've mentioned this many times but let's not forget that she has said she did consider killing yeah. Ron in the yeah. middle of the series so yeah. it, it wasn't impossible
0: concussion protocol survives a cracked skull and is allowed back on the streets forthwith right afterwards No safer
1: place. And of course, he lands on the plan to tail Malfoy with not one, but two elves. Love it. All right, friends. Come and stir our cauldron. And if you do it right. Yeah. We'll boil you up some hot, strong binge to keep you warm tonight. I love it. (laughs) Thanks, as always, to Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher who danced to Celestina. They were 18. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you were as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you will join us again tomorrow when we will be discussing Prince chapters 20 through 23. Please also check out our trailer breakdown for Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald, which you can find on the Ringer YouTube channel and all Ringer and Binge social platforms. And until next episode, it's time to pack up and an extra 10 points to Binge Mode for sheer cheek.
0: Bill, what is this therapist? Your mother likes this kind of music. Awful, <laughs> come and my cauldron. And if you do it, Bill, you know that they fucked to this. You realize that. <laughs> this doesn't even slap, Bill. I'm sorry. I can't listen to this. Where is the beat? Where is the downbeat? I can't feel this at all. Just, my God, I can't believe this. Awful. What's that over there, Fleur? Nothing, nothing, Molly. Yes, wonderful, great song, wow, oh, wow.